having a diversified set of brands that if you run them right, they can be good businesses for the rest of my career, certainly was really, really appealing. Some of that's my own orientation, which is, you know, this idea of building businesses that you can effectively work on forever and make them a bit better. And, you know, and at a certain point, you know, they're like a, you know, snowball rolling downhill and compound interest starts to take over with respect to quality and competitive advantage. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Sean Moriarty. How are you? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Of course. Thank you for coming on. So got to take it way back. I assume you're born and you immediately decide, that's it. I'm going to become a big executive with my life. That's what I'm gunning for. And it was just smooth sailing from there. You became CEO of several companies, served on many boards, and that was it, right? Just happened. Yeah. If only any of that were so easy, <laughs> including the running of businesses. So yeah. So yeah. take me back. Where, where did it start? Where are you born? Sure. I was born in, in Springfield, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. in Western Mass, and grew up there. And then Wilbraham, which is a small New England town, uh, which borders Springfield. Awesome. And were your parents business people? Like, what was your upbringing like? No, actually, my, you know, my dad was a career civil servant. And my mom was a nurse. You know, I think earlier in my career, you know, I would say, man, I, I really am the, the accidental businessman. Because where I grew up in Western Mass, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of, uh, of commerce. But I always enjoy, you know, I, I think, you know, my parents instilled pretty early the importance of hard work. And I always liked having a little bit of money in my pocket. And you know, I think one thing leads to another, you know, putting one dumb foot in front of the other. If you keep going long enough, uh, some interesting things come your way. I think that's totally right. So growing up, did you have like aspirations of being something specific? Every kid dreams of having that dream job. What was yours, so to speak? No, I, I think I probably cycled through everything, you know, a, a young you know boy does, right, which is almost based on the coolest thing you see in front of you, you know, whether it's a cement mixer, you know, or a fire truck or watching baseball on, on TV. I originally, you know, when I went away to school, you know, I, I thought, you know, perhaps, although I was never really kind of driven to think about things in a linear path, right? Like, you know, kind of managing a career was probably the last thing on my mind, but I thought at, at one point, you know, it might be neat to, you know, to teach and coach. You know, I did my undergrad work in the humanities, but I was coming out of grad school, you know, in the mid 90s at, you know, with the rise of the commercial internet. And I became fascinated by what that could become. And like many people, right place, right time can unlock tremendous opportunity. And, and so before college, like, did you have any idea what, like sort of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like did you, in terms of like, not that what's aside from the baseball and like what the, you know, seven-year-old wants to be, but like high school, what were your interests? What were you focused on? You know, not, not really, you know, I, again, I, you know, I, I had always worked from being a very young, you know, young kid and I had worked everywhere from, you know, kitchens, washing dishes all the way up to short order cook and, you know, busboy and bartender. And when I waited, but what I really care in, in sports, I really, you know, cared about, you know, in high school, excuse me, I cared about a couple of things. One was, was, was playing sports and the other one was reading. You know, I had been a voracious reader since I was a young kid. And, and again, Eric, I didn't have kind of a professional vision. I was fascinated by life, thought it was a great big world out there. 
And, you know, I figured I would do things that interest me to pay the bills with no real plan. I mean, you know, when I talk to young people today, on one hand, I'm incredibly heartened by our future because there's so much more squared away, for example, than I was. I, I didn't know what private equity was or venture capital and hedge funds really weren't even around then. But there was no, you know, the notion of, you know, a specific vocation or ladder to climb really was not part of of my worldview, you know. I it it so you know I just kind of cared about my education, and then as I said, you know, coming out of grad school, you know, this you could tell we were at the very beginning of something, at least for me, that was going to be profoundly important, which was you know the rise of of the internet with all that entailed. And once I got started there, you know, that's where I've spent effectively the re- my entire professional career. And so, where did you get started? What happened at a college? Yeah, so I had I went to college in in the southeast at the University of South Carolina and after grad school I'd come out to California. Now I came out to California because I had met my now wife then girlfriend at the University of South Carolina. Was crazy about her. She was from the central coast of California and wanted to go back to the west coast and I had always traveled pretty easily and I also felt that, you know, again so much of, you know, what was bubbling up around the internet was in California. So came out west in the mid '90s, and not too long after I was out, I uh, took a job at a company called City Search. You know, in that we ended up a couple of years after taking that business public, and you know, I was just very, very fortunate to kind of get in the industry very early. Knew it was something I was interested in, and then worked with really, really good people in an absolutely fascinating place at a fascinating time. Yeah. And what were you doing there? Like, what'd you step in as? Yeah, I, you know, I started off actually as a QA engineer. I started my career um, in product and technology. I had, you know, paying my way through undergrad and grad school. I was kind of, I guess what you'd call kind of a, a shade tree technologist, all self-taught, but I had done everything from uh, data, database management software to online collection cataloging, you know, and that was something that always helped pay the bills. And so I started at City Search as a QA engineer, and then I was a system administrator, and then I, you know, started managing teams. And I really, really enjoyed managing teams. And, and that's, you know, I would say, you know, you had asked earlier, what were you thinking about from a career perspective? Once I was in, you know, when I was working at City Search and with a little bit of success doing good work with good people and starting to manage teams, I kind of caught the business bug. You know, I became fascinated by what you could do if you built teams and built products and where you could actually take it. Amen. And so how long, how long did it take you before you were managing people there? Like how fast did you move up at City Search? Moved up pretty quickly. I think I was probably within a first year, year and a half, I was managing a small team of four or five folks. And, you know, and again, one of the beautiful things, and I say this to people all the time about about careers, which is you got to work hard and you got to be good at what you do, but you're really, you know, luck is incredibly important. And if you're at the beginning of something, you know, beginning of the consumer internet, and you're hardworking and you enjoy what you're doing and you're with good people, in a few years, you can gain not only a ton of experience when the playing field is very level, but you get opportunity thrown at you very, very quickly. So I was able to, in a course of a few years, you know, start to manage some pretty good sized teams. And I really, really enjoyed that. And so you, how long were you at City Search in total? I was there for probably three years. And then shortly before we took the business public, we had acquired Ticketmaster.com and took the combined company out as Ticketmaster Online City Search. Uh, not too long after that, I became fascinated with ticketing business, which at the time was largely an offline business. But you could see 
that it was going to be an absolutely dynamite online business. Yeah, I remember there was like, like even post Ticketmaster, there were like 50 other online services for tickets that tried to make it. And there was a kind of gold rush in that sense. Yeah, it's a much harder business that meets the eye and it is significantly a scale business. Yeah, 100%. And which Ticketmaster achieved. So did you move over to the Ticketmaster side after three years? Is that what happened? Yeah. So I think probably for about uh, 18 months or so, I was um, running product and technology at the corporate level. You know, so we had the city search business, we had match.com and the one and only network. You know, we bought the two leading personals businesses, and a lot of people wouldn't remember that. We acquired Evite and then Ticketmaster.com again, which was a small minority of the Ticketmaster overall business. And so I was overseeing all of that. And then, you know, probably sometime in mid 2000 or so, uh, maybe early 2001, I went to John Pleasance, who was the CEO of the business at the time and an absolutely fantastic guy, great executive. It said, John, I, I love this ticketing business. I would love to really focus my attention on, on Ticketmaster and see if I can, you know, can help us. Uh, because not only was I fascinated by the industry, but moving from offline to on, we knew it was going to be pretty darn difficult. But I had a fair amount of experience, you know, by that time, and he was good enough to give me that shot, and we were off to the races. Got it. Awesome. And uh, and tell me what happened next. I guess is then that would be the next question. Sure. The- yeah. So I, you know, I I ran the Ticketmaster.com business. Um, it kind of oversaw that well running product and technology ultimately for Ticketmaster overall, and I did that for the next few years, and then in two thousand and I took this COO role at, at Ticketmaster. The guy, a great guy by the name of Tim Wood, had been running that business, had been at Ticketmaster for a long time, and had stepped down. And I stepped into that role, did it for about a year, and then uh, John Pleasant. And just to get the time, I just want to get the timeline right. So, from how old were you at that point, COO of Ticketmaster? Uh, I was 34. Okay. And the reason I say this is the whole idea here is it's the path. And like, what's really fun about this is I haven't had, I don't think I've had someone in a hundred episodes that took more of the corporate path, started at the bottom and grew their way up to C-suite. I don't think I've had on here. So really want to show that this, as you talked about, like the idea of knowing about private equity, knowing about this, like the information out there these days is great, but a lot of people don't realize how many different paths to success there are. And this is one great one. So yeah, so 34 you're now the COO of Ticketmaster. Yeah. And then probably about a year later, John Pleasance decided to move on to another opportunity. He took the CEO job working with Steve Case at, at Revolution Health. And by this time, you know, we were wholly owned by IAC, USAI at the time, Barry Diller's business. And I, you know, then had the opportunity to run the Ticketmaster business for the next four years as the president and CEO. Was Karen Nortman there at that point? Yeah, she she's been on the podcast. She's a good friend. Yeah, I know, I know, I know Kara well. She Kara's absolutely outstanding. She's in my YPO forum, actually. <laughs> oh, is she? Yeah. yeah. She, so it's very interesting to me. Probably not interesting to anybody else. But Kara went to Harvard Westlake. I think it was her either basketball or volleyball coach. He was basketball coach. Was a guy named Dave Bennett, who interestingly enough, three thousand miles away and probably several years earlier, was my high school football coach in Western Mass. Dave's a Western Mass guy, but off and on coached at the Harvard School and then Harvard Westlake, probably over a 20-year period. 
That's amazing. Yeah, no, the but she's a great she's a great person and great executive. She's also she was she was roommates with my wife's boss and at GSB too. Like it's this whole small world thing that's just crazy. <laughs> so that's awesome. All right, so you're running Ticketmaster under IAC. John moves on. What? How does that progress from there? Yeah, we had a we had a, a really really good run. You know, the business you know was a very very solid business. What a lot of people but you know didn't know, you know, the core technology for ticketing is a non-trivial task and certainly was then. In combination of scaled distribution, really strong technology and in really capable local client service were kind of the hallmarks of that business. And really the the accelerant for me in that business, there were a couple of things. You know, one, obviously we're building off a really, really good platform. So we were well equipped to ride the transition from offline uh, to on. Uh, second, we international expansion gave us an awful lot of growth. You know, we were in you know a handful of countries outside the U.S. till the early 2000s. It was you know a, a slightly loss-making venture at the time, and then in the early 2000s, under John Pleasant's leadership, we started doing some acquisitions in which we really accelerated over the course of the next half decade. And I think by the time I left, you know, we were in 23 countries. And we had some outstanding people running our international business. A guy named Tommy Higgins, who ran Ticketmaster Ireland, ultimately ran our international business and, and turned it into, and I think when he started, it was probably a $100 million business, losing a little bit of money. You know, five years later, it was a $300 million business, you know, throwing off $60, 70000000 million in cash. And there's an outstanding entrepreneur who is running product and technology for Ticketmaster Europe, a woman named Selena Tabakawala, who was a co-founder of Evite while she was still an undergrad at Stanford probably 10 years before that. Selena's gone on to do absolutely fantastic things. That's amazing. And so what was, like, talk about being the COO of this. Like, what, what did it grow to, you know, what was the growth like during that period? What was, like, the parts of the job that you don't normally expect? Like, being a COO to a lot of people is going to be like, okay, so you're managing the operations. You're probably have a bunch of middle managers reporting to you or directors or VPs, and you're kind of keeping your pulse on things and keeping things organized. But what was the surprising parts of the job? You know, the interesting thing, the COO job was really a natural extension to what I was doing before, right? And so, but, you know, you, you've got, you know, kind of a broader scope of responsibility. In that case, you know, we, I, you know, I take it on the call centers, which were, you know, a meaningful minority of, of Ticketmaster's uh, sales and, you know, from a service perspective, substantial. You know, we probably took, you know, in the mid 2000s, 35 million inbound phone calls a year. And, you know, 85% of them were service related, not sales calls. You know, we consolidated in the 2000s from 19 call centers down to, I think by the time I left to two or three. And so a lot of complexity, a lot of technology implementation, you know, a lot of that work. But again, that was an extension that what I was doing. Moving from COO to CEO was a, a for me, a, you know, that was was a game changer. And but I had some benefit because as a COO and working with with John Pleasance and, and Terry Barnes, who was the chairman of the business, I was in the room a lot on strategic conversations. So I got to hear a lot of conversations and see the business, you know, through a different lens than just day-to-day execution, which I think helped a fair amount. But that transition still from COO to CEO, where, you know, you're running most of the business every day as a COO, but what you're doing is pretty clear to you, to CEO, all of a sudden, you know, it is a world of gray, 
and you're making calls all day long in a landscape that's you know constantly shifting. Yeah. And when did that shift happen? When did you become CEO? That was, let's see, I, initially I, I became the president and COO when, when John left probably in mid-2005, but I had responsibility for the entire business. And then that extended through when I left, which I believe was April 2009. But I had a, I had a great partner in the business. John Pleasance, my predecessor, did as well. I just mentioned his name a bit ago, Terry Barnes, who's kind of a, a legend in the live entertainment business, who had been with Ticketmaster for you know 20 years, at least probably before I got there. Terry had come out of Ticketmaster Midwest, really just a really high quality guy, knew the business cold, you know, what I would say natural businessman, but wonderful with clients and a great, great mentor. And so I and I think that's essential, particularly in your you know, your first CEO job, who you're working for and who you're working with is key. And Terry was a really, really generous, thoughtful mentor for me. Awesome. Got it. And so 2009 comes around, you've been there. How, how long was that point? 14, 15 years, it sounds like? No. So I'd probably, well, so I'd been doing internet stuff for probably about 13 years at the time. I've been focused exclusively at Ticketmaster, you know, probably, you know, just under a decade, I'd say. Okay. What, why'd you leave? Um, so the we had, the board had made so I spun Ticketmaster out of IAC back in August of 2008. It was probably a few weeks before you know Lehman and Bear failed. So right into an absolutely fantastic. When I started market. my first job, <laughs> and um, it uh, about six months after that, you know there were a couple of things going on at the time. You know, Barry had decided to spin several businesses out of. IAC. Lending Tree was one. Interval International was another. The Home Shopping Network was another. Ticketmaster was a fourth. So we went out, you know, into into that market. And probably about six, seven months after that, the board made the decision to merge Live Nation with Ticketmaster. The idea, you know, creating a kind of a vertically integrated live entertainer and entertainment, you know, juggernaut. And, you know, that was, you know, the certain, you know, I could certainly see the industrial logic of that. Ultimately, you know, it was going to be, you know, a, a business where, you know, with one CEO, I had spent a decade, you know, at Ticketmaster and Michael Rapino ended up being, you know, that CEO and kind of made sense for me, you know, at that time. I said, you know, I, I want to see the world. I want to, you know, do another business. I've had a very, very good run here. I think it represents a, a natural break point for me. And so I moved on shortly after that. Yeah, so it just felt like a natural transition, not like some like I'm out. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't the, those, you know, I think, you know, as a leader, one of the things you sign up for in almost every case is doing your absolute best for helping pave the way for the smoothest transition possible. Amen. We can all hope so as leaders. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, I think it's important. I there there's probably, you know, the very rare cases where, you know, the the kind of situation warrant something other than that, you know, but mostly, you know, as a, you know, as a leader positioning the company for success on the other side is the absolute best thing you could do. I mean, we're all really lucky to be doing what we're doing. Amen. And so did you leave for something or were you just like, I'm out and I'm going to go figure no, it out? You know, it's interesting. My, my first daughter was born a couple of years earlier at Ticketmaster, but by that time it was a global business and I was on the road a ton. You know, we had taken the business 
into China in the mid 2000s. We had done the Beijing Games, created a couple of joint ventures. As I said earlier, we had bought a bunch of ticketing businesses in Europe, and I was on the road 70% of the time. And you know, I, I knew that I wanted, you know, I needed a bit of a break, and I wanted to spend, you know, more time, you know, with my family. And so, you know, so I didn't leave for something specific. I then ended up spending a few years as an entrepreneur in residence uh, at Mayfield Fund. You know, one of the things I wanted to do after leaving Ticketmaster, you know, when you're running a business, like you know, you get, and I think it's the right thing to get, but you get tunnel vision about your business, right? Every day, it's your clients and customers and your employees, and you're thinking about strategy and you're focused on execution and solving problems as they pop up. And there's a point at which you realize, you know, or at least for me, I had, I didn't have an original thought about anything, broadly speaking, in a category that had been fascinating to me for really, really long, right? And you really want, to me, to be able to get a fresh view of where the world is going, I was really happy. You know, I had met uh, Raj Kapoor at Mayfield and he said, hey, why don't you come up and spend some time with us as an EIR, which I did. And the beauty of that is you're seeing dozens and dozens of companies, you know, a month where you see young, talented entrepreneurs coming up with extraordinary ideas that could lead to outstanding businesses. And it reawakens that curiosity and gets you thinking much more broadly about the future. And so I did that for a few years and also spent, was able to spend a lot more time, you know, at home uh, with my, with, a, with at the time, a young family. Got my first on the way in August. I get it. <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And so, okay. So you did that for a while and then did you get the itch to operate again? Is that what happened or? Yeah, I always knew, you know, you kind of, I think if you, you know, uh, if you're wired to operate at a certain point and, you know, I, you know, I liked. Um, sitting down with entrepreneurs, you know, as an EIR, I thought about, you know, venture, but, you know, being in the mix, building teams and building products has always been what's most exciting to me. And I think, you know, in a world where, you know, it, doing this work takes an awful lot of energy. And so really focusing on the things that get you the most motivated, I think are key to success and figuring out how do we put a team together? How do we build this product? How do we make this service better? That, you know, I kind of knew pretty early that's where, you know, I, I kind of drew the most satisfaction and energy and momentum. And I knew I would get back to it. Got it. And so what was that getting back to it? Yeah. So I so while I was at um, Mayfield, not only did I see a lot of stuff, but I had the, the opportunity. Also, I did, you know, I did a fair amount of board work. I joined the Eventbrite board at the time, which I'm still on, which is an absolutely fantastic uh, company with, with great leadership, great culture and a really good business. And I ended up also chairing the board of two companies, one uh, Triton Digital, which is really a platform technology provider for the terrestrial radio business. And the second was a business called MetaCloud, which was founded by one of my my uh, City Search and Ticketmaster colleagues, really talented entrepreneur named Sean Lynch, and the Yahoo engineering leader named Steve Curry. And uh, it was private cloud as a service business, ended up selling it to Cisco back in 2014. And so I was I was really busy, you know, for someone not operating, so to speak, at that period of time. But in 2013, I you know I I found a business that I that I fell in love with, uh, Sachi Art, fine art marketplace for emerging artists across the globe joined that company as a CEO. And so that's what really got me back into operating on a full-time basis. Got it. And what, how did you come across it? Was, and did Saatchi Art spin out of Saatchi, the agency, or is it completely different? No, it actually spun out of the, the Saatchi Gallery. And what, what had happened is that the Saatchi Gallery, so the Saatchi, the agency, 
was founded by two brothers, Charles and Morisachi. And Charles became a very, very prominent collector of emerging art and started the Saatchi Gallery, which probably to this day is one of the most highly trafficked, you know, galleries slash museums in the world. And and that so the business, you know, was incubated out of a partnership with a venture firm in the UK and the Saatchi Gallery, the, you know, and then the, the that firm, Balderton Capital, put some money into the business. And I think that it had seed money in, leadership had turned over. And, and I actually forget, you know, where I heard about the business first, but I had been very, very interested in, sorry, personal interest, always loved art. And from a professional interest, I'd always looked at opportunities to connect audiences to culture. And the fine art category was one that had been probably the toughest to move online. But I always felt and still do that inevitably, you know, the internet is the way of all things from a commerce perspective. And, you know, the business was a tiny little business, you know, probably doing, you know, under, you know, half a million bucks, probably in annual revenue. But the idea of building a platform for emerging artists who have a really, really tough go out there and connecting audiences to art in a category that had been so kind of, you know, I would say rarefied and exclusive to the point of being exclusionary was really appealing to me. And so jumped in, you know, almost at the beginning. And, you know, it's a business that we still own today inside of Leaf Group, which has a really, really bright future ahead of it. So I'm glad I took that job. And what year was that that you took it? Uh, 2013. Okay, got it. And so 2013 to now, how has that path been? I mean, you're you start, you jump in as CEO of this art business, but then you end up taking on this partner. You end up with Society6. You end up with all these other businesses. Like, talk to me about like going from CEO of that focus and how it then led to expanding that. Yeah. So we had, you know, probably slightly less than a, a year into the, the business. Then, you know, Demand Media had came, uh, come to see at the time, Sean Colo said, hey, we'd love to talk to you. We're very interested, you know, in, you know, in the business. And, you know, and I think the board is interested in talking to you, too, about potentially being the CEO of, of the combined company. And, you know, um, as you might imagine, those conversations happen. And I kind of walked away and said, gosh, you know, the there's a real opportunity here that, the man media business had had some challenges after you know a couple of years as a public company, but it had big audience and scaled revenue. Those things are really hard to come by. You know, when you build consumer internet companies, you know, big audience and profitable revenue are, are really hard to come by. And you know, I, the business was actually also well positioned in a number of really good categories. And you know, remember, I had run Ticketmaster inside of IAC, and I saw kind of the power of a diversified consumer internet business said, you know, I think there's an opportunity to do some something similar here. It's not easy, but I knew the Saatchi business, you know, being inside of something larger uh, was probably a better path than being purely venture backed. And the reason for that is it's, it's a business that, you know, should grow at a healthy, you know, double digit clip forever, but it's not a business where the application of huge gobs of venture capital can bend that curve and give you escape velocity. You know, you're talking about um, high average order values, really sticky customers, you know, but buying art well, an obsession for many, it's not a daily habit for many. And so it's a type of business that should grow at a healthy clip forever with really good unit economics, but not terribly well suited to constant up rounds. At the same time, I kind of looked and said, you know, gosh, inside of this, you know, this this broader portfolio, 
not only can Saatchi have patient capital, but, you know, we're in great, you know, we're in home when we're in fitness and wellness. And the idea of building digital first brands for passionate audiences from the beginning and doing it for the long haul was really, really appealing to me. Makes sense. Got it. And so you wanted, and you wanted just a bigger opportunity, it sounds like. You wanted the opportunity for that fast expansion, that big growth. Yeah. You know, look, I mean, you know, the other thing that started to happen is, you know, I think it probably happened a bit before that, but, you know, we're a few years now removed from, you know, the 07, 08, 09 years. Massive amounts of capital are flooding into, you know, the category, you know, consumer internet broadly and within almost every category. I said, and, you know, I realized, gosh, you know, scale really matters. It, you know, it always has, but but certainly here. And again, I'd also seen, you know, what had happened, you know, with the businesses, you know, inside of IAC that had gotten patient capital, you know, over the course of a decade. You know, many of them, they just ended up being fantastically good businesses. And I looked and said, man, you know, having a diversified set of brands that if you run them right, they can be good businesses for the rest of my career, certainly was really, really appealing. Some of that's my own orientation, which is, you know, this idea of building businesses that you can effectively work on forever and make them a bit better. And, you know, and at a certain point, you know, they're like a, you know, snowball rolling downhill and compound interest starts to take over with respect to quality and competitive advantage. Yep. A hundred percent makes sense. And yeah, it's amazing how much scale, like you get that operational efficiency and leverage that you can make, get a lot of, there's so many benefits to having that scale that if you can get it there, that's why m and is such a big part of this industry too. Makes sense. And so a uh, few more questions. Uh, first off, what was the, once you did that merger and you took on all this other responsibility, were there any surprises, like big surprises, obviously there's surprises, but like anything that you did not anticipate in terms of what it turned your life into or how the role changed? Um, yeah, I'd say, you know, there are a couple of things. So one, the, you know, the business, the core demand media business, you know, most of the revenue at that time, you know, was ad supported revenue and mostly flowing through, you know, eHow and Livestrong. The, I didn't realize how precipitous the decline was and would continue to be, particularly for, for eHow. And, and the second was how much we had to cut the library, right? I mean, the business was scaled content of, you know, of low quality that, you know, realistically, you know, Google had said, hey, if you don't have something to offer the customer, you're not going to get much in the way of carriage in search results, which I think was fair. And so, you know, we took, you know, I had to take that corpus of content down, you know, over the next couple of years by you know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 95%. And, you know, we, so basically I came in and, you know, the, the slope of the decline was much steeper than I thought. And I only made it steeper doing what we thought needed to be done. So that, that was one. And the second part is, you know, the public markets are a tough place for micro and small cap companies, particularly today. And, and particularly if you're doing a transformation, you know, there's, you know, a reason why most transformations now are done, you know, in a private setting and are private equity backed, right? Try, you know, putting forth quarters for, a, you know, for every 90 days for a dwindling audience of people who are interested and most of whom are, are looking for value dislocation, but without the same notion of long-term commitment to an opportunity. So that was really, really hard. You know, I, I, I miss both of those things, but nonetheless, 
you know, we, we, you know, we came through it. You know, I think the business, you know, bottomed at probably 115 million in revenue, you know, in 2016. And, you know, by, you know, 2020, you know, our last full year as a public company, we nearly doubled the revenue of the business. So it can be done, but the first couple of years were hard. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're dealing with, as you said, quarterly reports and stock prices, it's even harder. I hear it from a lot of friends at running publicly traded companies now that it's like, it's almost a distraction. They try not to look at the stock price because it's just such a ridiculous part of dynamic of the business. Yeah. And the world has gotten, you know, only, I would say, you know, it seems, you know, only more, you know, short term, right? And so it becomes harder and harder for all, but, you know, the, the largest companies with the strongest track record and, you know, the most stable share register, you know, they mostly are, are pretty well positioned to navigate it in most markets. Uh, although, you know, you, we saw what happened at the beginning of the pandemic. And now, you know, we're seeing, you know, as we're emerging, you know, we're also seeing what's being brought to bear on companies that, you know, after the first month of the pandemic, you know, went on a, you know, extraordinary run and are now substantially coming back to earth. Yep. Agreed. So two more questions. Number one, what's next? What, what do you think's down the pike for you? Just keep going? Sure. So, yeah, look, I've always been a big believer. If, if if you're enjoying what you're doing, you feel like you're making a meaningful contribution and it's working, then keep going. You know, um, you know, we you know, we were acquired by Graham Holdings last June, you know, the former Washington Post company. And and I couldn't be happier. They are a world class organization. Absolutely fantastic people. You know, Don Graham, the chairman and Tim O'Shaughnessy, uh, the CEO, they're just great. They are very, very long-term focused. They have high expectations for us to produce, as they should, but they really care about doing things the right way and for the long haul. And, you know, I look at our businesses and we're still very much at the beginning. You know, the Saatchi Art business, as we talked about earlier, that business has room to grow and grow and grow. It's a mission-oriented business that's absolutely well positioned for the world is go where the world is going. You know, our fitness and wellness brands, well and good and live strong, well, they provide evidence-based information that allows anybody online to live a richer and fuller life. Right. And so, you know, we're doing really good stuff with the brands. They're in massive, massive categories, and we are nowhere near close to running out of room to make them bigger and better. That's awesome. That's a great place to be and I couldn't agree more. So last question for you. For someone just getting started that like wants to succeed and then whether it's professionally or I should say it is professionally, but let's say it's not necessarily in being an executive. It could be a, they want to be an athlete, they want to be a musician, or they want to be an executive, or they want to be a founder. What would be the one piece of advice you either wish you received or you did receive that really you think could help someone, you know, sort of get out of their own way and go or that they can hear yeah. help be successful? Yeah, gosh. I mean, it's, it's it's a great question. It's also, I think, one that gets asked a lot. You always worry, you know, gosh, can I bring anything new to the conversation? But I would say, you know, a couple of things. One, I do believe at the beginning of your career in particular to, if if you truly have ambition, you want to, you got to test yourself and see what you can do. And that's not for everyone, by the way. Put yourself in an area that you're deeply interested in in the most competitive environment you can, where you can learn the most, right? Because the benefit you get when you're young in getting into these environments is you get to be a sponge for knowledge. And so if you go into a place that's going to hold you to a really, really high standard where you're struggling to keep up and you can learn a ton about in an area that you're already interested in, it's going to give you 
the most advantage. You know, the second thing is to to have the courage to find your voice early. You know, there are times, you know, I think early in your career, early, so, and I think this is different by personality, but my personality, where, you know, I would refrain from voicing, you know, what I thought, because you don't want it to be taken the wrong way, or people think you're difficult. And, and realistically speaking, you know, finding your voice early allows other people a chance to understand what you think, right? And realistically, the success you're going to have in your career is mostly driven by your ability to think and your ability to communicate and to translate those things into action to drive business forward. So the sooner you know what you think, you get fearless about voicing it, uh, the better you're going to be in your career. You can still be respectful and thoughtful and be your personality, but speak up, find your voice. Amen. Great advice that I don't think I've had on here before. So I really appreciate that. So thank you. And Sean, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Hey, Eric, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.